and welcome to Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gillette. Joining me today is Don Hanley and then Richard Bale. We'll talk about news and items, but Don, appreciate you taking the time to uh, join us today. I'm glad to be here today. Uh, Don's new to the staff. He's the uh, new assistant editor. Won't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How'd you get in the hobby? Maybe a little bit of your background? Absolutely. I got into the hobby really at an early age. My folks bought me a Lionel train set that I got for Christmas one year. I think I might have been five or six. But I remember laying down in the middle of that plywood board with a loop of track and watching that train go around. And in my mind, I was driving the train across the country. I Obviously, I had a fascination with trains before then because my parents picked up on it. But uh, as long as I can remember, I've loved trains uh, all the way through high school, college. I never really got out of the hobby. So in that sense, I've been involved with the hobby for well over 50 years. I had a career in uh, utility engineering, construction uh, management for heavy highway projects and surveying and did that for 30 years. My wife had her own business and after a while uh, traveling, it was decided, you know, I really didn't enjoy traveling. It wasn't fun. So we have a small cleaning business that we uh, do. And then this opportunity came up. I love trains. I really do enjoy writing articles, too. So it gave me an opportunity to do that also. And uh, I'm really excited about the the future of where MRH can go. And I'm excited about the opportunity of working with Joe and Patty. They, they're really great people to work with. Okay. In March issue of Model Railroad Hobbyist, Don did a guest editorial article on what he's referring to as a mastermind group as an asset for model railroaders. So, Don, uh, tell us a little bit about that. I thought it was an incredible article. I can't origin- say that I originated the idea. Uh, comes from Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich. Uh, he talked about developing mastermind groups to help you build your wealth. And I took the concept step farther for the hobby, developing a mastermind group so that you can improve your hobby skills and be able to a lot of it just ends up being building a camaraderie and friendship, but it also the idea that it's a purposed intent to improve your skills and help other people, teach other people to help them improve their skills. It seems very logical. How do you overcome the, you know, some people, especially if they're new and they're adults and they're new to the hobby, they've got a real reluctance to sometimes ask for help. How do you get around that? You know, that's, an interesting comment because as adults, we tend to think, okay, I want to go in and make this perfect. We need to actually put on our little kid's hat and say, I'm going to go in and muck it up and have fun. I'm going to play and have fun. As adults, we tend to worry about the outcome uh, as opposed to thinking about the process. So for me, it's important to help people understand the first time you do something, you're not an expert. Second time, third time, fourth time, you're not an expert. Uh, they say to be an expert, you need to spend 10,000 hours at something. Well, that's a lot of time to be spending on a lot of different aspects of the hobby. You know, nobody's going to be an expert at any, except for maybe one or two items. And so, but, uh, so anyway, that, like I said, the point is, and this is a personal thing that you have to help people with, is to get over the fear factor of actually asking the question. As the old rule says, there's no stupid question. That's right. Are there certain personality types, because I see it at the store, 
some people are just naturally giving and and other people aren't you know they they represent a little bit more of a challenge to make them your friend yeah there are different personality types i know this isn't part of it necessarily part of the mastermind group but it does apply you have there's a whole field of personality studies and part of it is if you understand which personality you're dealing with, the way you communicate with that personality is different. The one that I'm most familiar with uh, was uh, put forth by, I believe it was Jim Rohn. It's called DISC, D-I-S-C. And there's four basic personality types. And so how I talk to one type of personality type is different than the other one. And it's not one of those things that's uh, 100%. You got to do it this way, but it's kind of a good guideline. It's another source of material that if you have the ability to uh, look at it, uh, do some research on it and spend a little bit of time, it doesn't take a whole lot just to get an overall picture and flavor of what's available. It helps you in understanding what type of person you're talking to. Okay, now what were the four categories? What did the, uh, the letters? D is for dominant. I is, I'm drawing a blank on that one right now. S is social and C is conscientious. So is I like intelligent or indifferent uh, or something like no, that? No, I is, I'd have to do some digging up, but I can find, I think I could find it. I just can't remember. I think it's, I want to say, not intuitive, inspiring. Oh, okay. Inspiring. Inspired. Yeah. In what context? Just they're the ones that like to inspire people, okay. you know, things like that. There are others. And the reason I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with this is because a construction company I used to work for, uh, they had all of us take the test. And it's one of those things where you have a bunch of answers. There's no right answer, no wrong answer. It's just the answer how you would do it. And gives yes. you, it, it categorizes you that way. Now, speaking, as I mentioned before we uh, started uh, the session, we are building a modular railroad in the back of the hobby uh-huh. shop. Not, not a free mode, but using dominoes. Right. Maybe that's a better okay. term. And we're making it open to customers, and the purpose is to help them learn uh-huh. because we've got some customers that have been published in some of the model railroading magazines, so they're quite good at what they do. Uh-huh. We've got guys that are electronic quizzes, and we get a lot of retiring baby boomers who want to get either back into model railroading or just it's something they've always wanted to do, but they're overwhelmed. And so we're going to try using this as a learning tool, you know, Saturday morning uh, workshops. Oh, that sounds like an excellent idea because I was part of a modular group also at one time. And, okay. uh domino effect, more or less, so you could put any two parts together that you wanted to. At least that was the way it's mm-hmm. supposed to work. Uh, this sounds like something where you could always, once you get one module done and people keep learning, you could, you know, swap it out and put in another one if you so chose and, start on another phase where people hadn't been involved with that. I think the important thing for somebody starting out, from my perspective, is go in with the idea that I'm here to learn, and you really need to think of it as like K through college. And since I've not done it, any part of it, I don't know anything, so I'm in kindergarten. And there's nothing wrong with being there because we all have to start it. Then from there, what's the important thing is people that have knowledge in specific areas, be it woodworking, track laying, scenery, painting, electronics, just wherever their skills are at, they need to be willing to share. And that's what makes a mastermind group work is 
those that with knowledge in a specific area or ideas are willing to share. And then the other part that makes it work is people that don't necessarily have as much knowledge uh, ask questions. And they can ask questions that I've had people ask me questions where I thought I knew the answer and I got thinking about it and I'm sitting here and I'm scratching my head. Well, maybe I don't know as much as I thought I did, which causes me to go out and prove my knowledge on the subject. Okay, we'll be back and talk more with Don here in a moment. But I want to remind you, the April 2013 issue has just been released. Check it. We've got an article by Don himself in there where he talks about Erie Box Cars of the 50s. It's a multi-part series, so that's part number one. And then, as usual, Mr. DCC, Bruce Petrucca, he's in there. He's talking about demystifying DCC Ready this month. It's an excellent article, and it explains a lot of things when you go to check out DCC decoders at your shop. Again, download it now, the April 2013 issue of Model Railroad Hobbyist. So the mastermind group, in another way of... Uh, Thinking about it, it's like a, uh, well, certainly a peer group, but it's it's networking. It's, it's very much networking. Um, and I think, as I wrote in the editorial, you can have different mastermind groups within different, within the same organization. It's, excuse me, it's people that you have influence over and have influence over you. So you're going to have a group of people that naturally gravitate together because of common interests, uh, say, in scenery are detailing freight cars, passenger cars, are people that are interested in electronics. And so they're going to do a little more together than, say, I would, because electronics is like foreign language to me almost. So I, I need to learn more, but I'd be more interested in helping somebody with uh, detailing and, and seeing and so forth, because I feel I'm more comfortable in that area. So part of it, like I said, is I just got to learn to step out of my own, get out of my own way and get in there and learn some stuff too. Yeah, and it can be a delicate balance sometimes of offering help so that it's received not as you being a know Absolutely. Uh, There's a subtlety. Very much of a subtlety. I find personally for me, if someone comes in and tells me, no, no, you got to do it this way, then might go up. If someone asks, can I help you or do you have any questions, then I'm a little more open to listening. Uh, it's, it's all in the approach. And then the other thing is to find somebody, you know, I don't know, and this is a biggie, you have to be willing to ask the question. I don't know how to do this. Can you show me or can you help me? Mm -hmm. And then when someone asks that, then you can approach them. But again, it's like, okay, let's find out how much you know and where do we start at. Going back to the school analogy, uh, if someone's at the sixth grade, you don't really want to start them out in, in first grade again. You know, pick up where they know and move mm -hmm. on. So it's a, it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. In the long run, uh, I personally believe that it would be great for the hobby if we could get more people thinking this way of how do I do it? You know, how do I develop this group? How do I work within this group? You can just build some great friendships in the process. That, and another resource, because I show this to people, because we keep a computer out on the front counter that anyone can you know, if they want to look up something in uh -huh. Walters or Horizon or whatever. So I'll keep one of the windows open to Model Railroad uh -huh. Hobbyist, whatever the latest uh, issue is. And I write down the, the web address. I said, look, tremendous resource Absolutely. here. And then another thing is 
is YouTube. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of crap on YouTube, but there is some really, really good stuff there. There's a, I've interviewed him on this show before, a guy named Everett Clausen, uh-huh. Big E61. He has got a complete video blog, uh, pretty much start to finish, on building a model oh. railroad. Uh-huh. Scenery, weathering, wiring, trackling. So there's a lot of, you can even have a uh, electronic component uh, to your mastermind uh, group, I guess, yeah. is my point. You can have any component that would actually fit within the uh, realm of building a layout from uh, woodworking to uh, actually, you know, the painting backdrops, uh, you know, the artistic mm-hmm. component of it uh, to the uh, photography. Uh, and that's one of the things uh, in the magazine that uh, section, yes, it's a model. You look at some of that, and those models that we built, and you look at the photograph, and you sit there and you scratch your head and go, gee, how did they do that? You know, it's so, it's so, it's the composition of the photograph along with the quality of the work and the, and the whole, you know, the whole, uh, gamut of things with it. Yeah, and that's where, uh, Charlie on, uh, on staff, he's an incredible uh-huh. photographer. Uh, the other part of it, too, that uh, as far as mastermind group, uh, a lot of areas where I'm at, we have a small local hobby shop, but it really, it's, um, have, they have to mail order a lot of stuff because their focus is on custom painting. And so you just don't have a group, a group of people coming in where you can sit around and talk and listen like you can in a lot of other hobby shops or in other cities. Um, that's where the forum is. I think one of the, that's the hidden gem of this magazine because people can ask questions. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that are willing to share. You know, just because you have a group that seems to have a lot of the answers and everything, there's, there's, you're opening yourself up to exposure of a whole group of people, you know, that have more answers than what, uh, your local group has. Uh, you say expand your group from 30 or 40 to, Almost 25, 30,000 people, you know, that look at that and participate on a fairly regular basis and not from just the U.S., but from around the world. Yes. It's uh, what we call the uh, the snowbird. Yes. From October to uh, end of March this time of year, we get all these people from the north and get a lot of people, Canada and then the northern tier of states, especially in the central uh-huh. Midwest. And it's amazing the uh, perspective that some of these people bring in. So that goes to your point of it can actually go beyond just your little part of Phoenix or Sparks, Nevada, wherever Correct. you are. Yeah, you get used to them. And these little Wednesday and Thursday morning, but there's a group of modelers that goes and has uh-huh. coffee and then they come by the uh, the shop to see what's new. And the conversations that I've learned uh, stuff just listening to these guys uh, talk, you know, we become an extension of their uh, coffee uh, meeting. So anyway, it's uh, you get to know people and so forth. I think one of the well, other things that this magazine actually brings out too is for a long time, if you really wanted to model an area and do so with relatively yes. a- accurate, it's, it was an area most people modeled where they lived at. Uh, now with mm-hmm. the internet and the advent of the internet and also with people all over the place, you can, you know, while we do focus primarily on North American railroads, uh, there's some neat, very neat stuff that's uh, international railroads, too, that, you know, from other countries, people model. And uh, some of those photos show up. And it's just absolutely amazing the work they do. And so hopefully the thing I'd like to see is in the future, 
sure we may not necessarily model that specific railroad, but there are techniques and so forth from different parts of the world that could be very useful to us here in North America also. Exactly. Increase mm -hmm. the flavor. As far as for the mastermind group, I'm, I would just encourage people to be open, uh, give it a try. A lot of times you find that people influence you on your uh, decisions and on uh, improving your skills and challenge you. And so just pursue it uh, and don't be afraid. Uh, it's, it can be scary at times, um, and it can be frustrating when you get some, you, and I've had it before. I've had, uh, some models I built. I thought I did a really great job on them, and then they were critiqued, and it's like, ugh. You know, it was a shot to the gut, but I sucked it up. Yeah. Went back, made some changes, made some of the changes and corrections that people thought, and the, uh, the level of skill went up and the quality of the model went up. And in the long run, while it wasn't pleasant, uh, it was beneficial. And I think that's what people need to understand. Uh, it's not always a patch on the back at a boy that, you know, feel good. There's a serious mastermind group will challenge you and, and it's going to be uncomfortable at times, but work through that and then actually, you know, Take to heart what, what's been said, improve your skills, improve your process, and in the long run, overall, you'll be a much better modeler. And I also think, um, you know, modeling, it, it's a, a hobby that's it's not a lone wolf hobby. It's really a, a social hobby uh, where you can share and teach others uh, different skills and so forth and help them. Okay, I agree. I agree. Joining me for this section is Richard Bale, who's the news editor at MRH Mag, and we've got a couple interesting topics today. Uh, both of them involve relatively uh, innovative products in the market. So, Richard, how's it going today? Good, Paul. Nice to hear from you, and uh, good to be with you. Okay. Well, let's get into the the meat of it, and that would be the Cato announcement about their upcoming. HO scale P42 locomotive and the innovations that it's uh, bringing to market? Um, well, f let me start off by saying uh, Cato, Cato, Potato, Potato. <laughs> um, yeah. I had the, uh, I had the pleasure of, uh, of meeting Vuji Cato, uh, the man, uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, like a lot of model railroaders, I wasn't sure how to pronounce his name. And so I asked him, was it Cato or Cato? And he yeah. smiled and said, uh, he's a very dignified, white-haired gentleman. He smiled and he said, uh, you can call me anything you want as long as you buy my trains. That's okay. All right. <laughs> so I, 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 uh, I tended to call him Cato, but uh, I, I hear it both ways in the marketplace. But I thought I'd mention that. Well, sure. 
their new um, the the new product that they've introduced is uh as I'm sure many of you have heard is an individual um self-contained power truck. Um it's it's beautifully engineered, very compact, and I think the uh the essence of it is that it frees up the inside of the uh, the rest of the locomotive housing for weight and for uh, lots of room for a nice, uh, uh, effective speaker, a larger speaker than, than we're used to. Yes. Other than that, um, I'm not sure what, what the, uh, what the specific benefits are. We've had some, well, uh, we, go ahead. The other thing, I mean, I think you're right. Most of us thought of, Wow, big location for a uh, a speaker. The other thing is it frees up room for uh, a battery power unit, say like a, one of the liquid uh, polymer units that have been uh, tried in a few applications. So now when you look at the technology or just that approach, of course, Neil Stanton uh, through Northwest Shortline had his Stanton drive, oh, what, a year or so ago? Yes, at least. Okay. And the one distinction that uh, Kato's done is they've integrated the flywheels right onto that motor in that truck, which I think is really neat. Um, I have not personally seen a truck, I've uh, one of the new Kato trucks. I've seen uh, photographs and some fairly tight photographs, but the uh, – the flywheel appears to be quite small, but of course it doesn't yes. have to be too large to uh, to be somewhat effective. But I agree with okay. you. Other than that, uh, that seems to be the, the significant difference. The other thing is that Kato um, is uh, has a lot of resources in terms of, of engineering capability, and mm -hmm. it's nice to see that uh, that the concept is being addressed by one of the larger, more reliable uh, manufacturers, which is, I'm not saying anything against Northwest Shortline or against Neil Stanton, but uh, to see it uh, to see it designed by a, a group of engineers uh, from a large outfit is uh, is kind of reassuring. Yes, it has like an inherent uh, credibility to it. Seems to yes. And I know the information that we received at the hobby shop was that uh, it'll be available with both, I guess, your choice uh, as a way to work out a tsunami sound or one of the new ASU presuming uh, look sound 4.0. That's kind of unique. Yeah, that's my understanding, too, that you there's an option there. Wow. Uh, I think one of the one of the large questions, and it's been – um, I, I've been in on some discussions with some of the folks in the industry, uh, mm -hmm. and the the question seems to be the ability of uh, of a, a DCC decoder handling two separate uh, motors, controlling two separate motors, and attempting to synchronize the speed of those two motors. Uh, it's my understanding that. Um, 
one way of doing it is to is to use two uh, you know dual DCC decoders, one for okay. each motor, or um, the use of a larger one which uh, can handle a, a higher amp rating and uh, and have the single unit driving both of the motors. But coordinating the speed of two motors so that they're not fighting each other, uh, that's a challenge. Okay, I agree. I agree. And I guess I would just in the back of my mind go, well, if Kato's approach, and you mentioned the, the strength of the engineering resource behind it, I bet you they've got a solution. Well, we can certainly hope so, and and uh, they're you know they're a very conservative uh, operation, and uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't think that they would introduce anything into the marketplace that they hadn't thoroughly tested. Yeah. Um, one of the other questions that's come up, Paul, is um, the use of a uh, of a cordless motor. Um, I think these uh, this kind of approach has been used in Europe. Uh, by several manufacturers. I think Markland was uh, among them. But um, the cordless motors, uh, they had a tendency to overheat when when uh, operating from a DCC signal. Uh, have you had any experience with that with any of your customers? Uh, no. Well, the, we haven't seen very many of them in North America, but this new Kato unit uses a cordless motor. And okay. it's a it's a design a motor that uh, that literally lacks a core. I'm not an electrical engineer so I can't uh, explain it, but they are they are more expensive. Uh they're more precisely made than maybe some of the things that we've seen in the uh, in the model of railroad uh, industry. Okay. But I think the real point is that uh they uh, they have not necessarily proved to be overly successful in the European market. Okay, which in which Kato uh, participates, they uh, they do market in Europe themselves. Now, do you know? Does the cordless motor then inherently have a uh, lower current draw? I can't answer that. I, I, okay. I, the only thing I can pass along is what I heard from uh, a couple of engineers uh, discussing it, and they said that in their experience. The uh, the European cordless motors did not uh, did not perform well in DCC applications. And again, we'll just ultimately have to wait and see. But since Kato uh, participates in that market, then I'm sure that was just another challenge to be addressed in the uh, design process and uh, manufacturing process. Okay. I would I would certainly think that's the case, Paul, because again, you know, Kato is very methodical in their approach to uh, introducing products. So uh, I, I would have to put my money bet my money on them at this point. Okay. Well, I'm, I know we have a couple guys that are just rabid Amtrak. You know, they do that time period, and uh, you know, the Aether ready to run version of the P42 has been hard to get because of the uh, that interruption of product flow out of China for Aethern, but uh, they're just salivating, waiting for this thing to show up in the shop and have us put it on a test track so we can see what it does. 
And so am I. You know, I think this is just neat. What, uh, what's been their response to the price tag, which I believe is $320. Is that correct? That, I've heard it's north of 300 with the sound. Yeah. So while I've not heard it addressed or seen it addressed in writing, I'm presuming that there'll be a non-sound version. And if it is, then it's going to be a $200, let's say, $200 locomotive. And so it's up there with Genesis and Proto and, you know, the guys who want to buy that, they just want what they want. Yeah. And if it's 200 or if it's 250 they don't care. They just, here's my money and let me have it. And I'm that way to a degree. Yeah. Well, I, I I, I'm it. sure that, uh, that a lot of uh, a lot of model railroaders are of that mentality. The, the <laughs> curious thing is that... Um, the concept here is to is to allow, among other things, to provide more room internally for for a, a better sound reproduction, and yet, oh, yeah. so to go that route for a non-sound system is is a little bit uh, contradictory. But we'll have and to like, see, as you say, we'll have to see what happens, and uh, you know, ultimately, the marketplace is going to decide. Okay, and uh, unless you know the down. Another downstream objective is having the option of incorporating battery power. I mean, right. you know, how many of us would like to get rid of doing drops and worry about, you know, reverse loops and uh, dirty track? Yeah, I had the pleasure of, uh, of witnessing uh, some of the fellows from the so-called uh, Dead Rail Society, and uh, they set us up uh, – by uh, it kind of gave us a surprise. They had a piece of track which they laid on a on a dining room table section of track, mm -hmm. and then they put a, a battery powered locomotive on it. And we really didn't know, or I didn't know anyway, exactly what it was they were going to be showing us. So they put the locomotive on the on the piece of rail, and um, and it, it moved very started out very smoothly and very uh, very much in control and. It got to the end of the track, and it just kept right on going, right across the dining room table. <laughs> and, you know, the remote control uh, airplane and car guys, they it's my understanding. I'm not in that hobby, but when I mention uh, liquid polymer, the guys at this, the shop that also use it, they go, oh, yeah, I use that in my airplanes or I use that in my cars. So yeah. it, that's a proven technology. It just needs to be downsized, miniaturized. Exactly. Okay. Well, we're going to be back with Richard here in just a moment. We're going to be talking about real interesting air hose that's now available to the HO. So I want to remind you, the April issue of Model Railroad Hobbyist magazine is out. One of the things that you can do is uh, look for John Dry's article. He's talking about group operating sessions and how you can benefit if you visit other club, other groups, operating sessions. Look at what they're doing, how they're doing it. It just broadens your, your perspective. And it ties in with Don Henley's uh, article on having a mastermind group, reaching outside of ourselves to get experience and uh, skills. So let's get back to the conversation with Richard. Okay. Richard, so now we've got, we've seen the video, 
we've seen the discussion on the discussion forums about uh, this auto-coupling MU hose, air hose, uh, and made, I guess, by Fairway Park models? Yes, it's my understanding that uh, um, Fairway Park models did uh, did introduce it uh, not terribly long ago. Um, but the idea has been uh, kicked around, I think, for a couple of years by individuals, but no one ever uh, had the gumption to uh, actually try to uh, uh, produce them and, and market them. So th this is a this is a great step forward, um, and it's we're talking about an HO self-coupling uh, air brake hoses that have that have very small magnets on the end of the hose, and uh, it's uh, the appearance on it is <laughs> is really terrific. It's very neat to to see these uh, freight cars coupled up with these uh, air brake hoses. I must say, uh, Paul, I, I was a little surprised that it that it came in with HO. I would have thought that one of the larger scales, and particularly some of the wonderful things that the uh, the O scale uh, fine scale group are doing, I would have uh, expected to see it there. But the because of the size of the of the magnet, it's it's slightly oversized in HO. Maybe I'm being generous there. It is definitely oversized in HO. <laughs> but um, it's an interesting development. Well, you know, the, the video that was posted on the the one thread on the forum and showed the the hoses just automatically coupled in magnetic attraction. I went, I didn't notice the size of the magnet. I just saw the hoses coupling, and then once it was done, I thought, boy, that looks a lot better than the... Uh, the Katie glad hands sticking down there. Yeah, it's true. There's no question about it. The um, it's my understanding that uh, um, Pacific Western Rail Systems has uh, has taken over the marketing of the uh, of the item. And uh, for those of us who've watched the video, um, it looks it. It's one thing to uh, install it in, uh, and I don't want to sound negative here, but it's one thing to install it in a couple of cars, a couple of freight cars, but if you've got a fleet of uh, you know, 30, 40, 50, 200 freight cars, this is going to be a real challenge to, uh, to install these, this little item. So, well, you've got the time, and then have you heard what the, uh, the price point is on the street? Yeah, it's uh, $25 for 10 pair, or 24.98 for 10 pair. That's the okay. uh, that's the list price. So that's 250 a, a, a car. Okay. Well, it's it, the money is one factor, but on the other hand, it's the time to sit down mm -hmm. and, and install that in that many cars. Now, there's an opportunity here. I think uh, it's my understanding that for the moment, Fairway is continuing to to doing the manufacturing, but they do plan to retool in China and, and produce it over there, which is two opportunities. First of all, I, I would think that we might see some reduction in price, maybe not, but always that possibility. But the other mm -hmm. thing, and maybe the most important thing, is that if they're going to tool it, they could tool it in such a way that it would simplify the installation. Um, there is a bent wire that has to be installed, and then the 
as the system stands now, there's a, a bent wire to install against the uh, side of the of the coupler pocket, and then the air hose is uh, is glued or adhered to the end of that wire. I'll know that you know one piece of wire glued to another the end of another piece of wire is not always the best or the surest connection in the world. So I think there's an opportunity for maybe redesigning it slightly there. Okay. Going back to your point about the uh, the effective cost, I would see myself, uh, if I've got 30 coal cars in a string, then, yeah, the locomotives are detailed and the first five or six cars are uh, very well detailed, as are the the last five or six cars. And caboose if it's that age of train. I tend to be less concerned about the cars in the middle of the train because people focus on the locomotive and the first part of the train and then they tend to, especially if it's a caboose train or has a uh, an end of train light on it like ring makes, that's where they focus their attention and the stuff in the middle kind of blurs. So that would certainly be one way to approach it, do the high interest parts of a large string. As yeah, a I way of moderating the cost, yeah. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Uh, that's that's one sensible and practical approach. Um, but it does look good, I tell you what. <laughs> and I guess you can do this on locomotives also, right? Yes. Well, yeah, and it's not – I don't think it's limited to uh, – at this point, it, it's for freight cars, but surely we're going to see it for uh, – for all those goodies hanging down underneath the passenger car coupler. Oh yeah, and, maybe they do the steam lines also. <laughs> sure. For those of you who are, who have not had the opportunity of of seeing the video, uh, I can refer you to the March edition of uh, Model Railroad Hobbyist magazine. The address is too long for us to try to repeat it here on the on the air, but I did want to mention that uh, that they can go back to that March issue and pick it up there. And it's a very okay, interesting great. video to watch and will give you a, a, a much better understanding of uh, of what you and I have been talking about in terms of this. It's really a brand new idea and a brand new product, at least in the marketplace uh, for HO modelers. You know, we get, uh, we've got this happening. We've got, uh, yeah, Jeff Bunz out there making engineers' heads turn and uh, wave, uh, you know, signal lanterns up and down. So, you know, in five years from now, these trains will uh, be putting out diesel fumes and uh, have people walking up and down the uh, cab steps. Well, this is the golden age of model railroading. Let me tell you, it's it's wonderful the things that are available. That's great. Well, going back to some of our previous conversations and from what we're seeing in the store, is Atlas you know, getting ahead of the curve on getting their supply line of a lot of uh, products like the Code 83. Have you heard? Is that on the way to happening? Well, I I can't answer on on their uh, specifically on their track work, but they do seem to be uh, advancing rapidly on their uh, on the freight cars and uh, on some of the passenger cars. I, I think they're to be commended for having turned around the the uh, branch line tooling as quickly as they did. Yeah. And, 
bringing many of those things to uh, to market. But um, I, I'm not in a position to really comment on their uh, on their track work. I know that they've had some some real challenges there in trying to keep that pipeline filled. But I I, I don't have any inside information on that. Okay. Uh, we finally started getting Code 100 Atlas Flex, and it, it's coming in in I think it's five piece box sets now. But as far as Code 83. Uh, we've been selling a lot of the microengineering uh, three-foot Code 83 Flex and HO, but we have more and more blank hooks on the wall, especially in the uh, Atlas, you know, in the sectional with the snap track. Right. In both 83, not so much on 100, but on N-scale, the uh, Code 55 and the Code 80 over there are getting a lot of uh, empty spots in it. And we have people calling from out of state now because they're aware of our website calling. Do you have this? Do you have that? Mm-hmm. And so I've, I was just curious. I'm I'm hoping they're working their way out of it. It just seems like a long tunnel that they're having to walk through. Yeah, that's uh, that appears to be the case. And uh, I we've talked about several different products uh, recently with Atlas, uh, but the track work is is one of those things that they're just not willing to share any uh, any special information on at the moment. I, I visited a large, a fairly large uh, model railroad dealer um, this past weekend, and uh, I noticed the same thing that in the uh, in the packaged Atlas snap track section, that uh, as you say, there were a lot of empty hooks. So I think it's. Uh, it's an issue that I know they're working hard on trying to resolve, but uh, what progress is being made, uh, we're just not aware of. Okay. Well, we wish them uh, success in getting that uh, back on stream. Yeah. Um, it, it continues to be a challenge, and the good side, I suppose, of all of this is the things that have been coming in recently from uh, – from China, uh, there's some been, been quite a few Athern things, for example, in, in the recent weeks, and uh, downright gorgeous. It's just amazing-looking stuff. Uh, yes, and uh, you mentioned the branch line aspect with Atlas. Uh, Lisa, that at the store where I am, their uh, kits, you know, based on the branch line kits, have been well received. The That's guys who just like to put together kits are just ecstatic every time we get a shipment in. And it's a good price point, so there's a win for them. Well, I hadn't heard any feedback on the acceptance of the kits, so I'm very glad to hear that. Uh, I think that some manufacturers have been disappointed in um, saying that the kits don't sell well. So that's very good to hear that. I'm pleased. And, you know, when parents bring in, like, uh, the younger kids – and I mean like 8, 9, 10 teenagers, and they want to build their modeling skills, they'll ask, what do you have in car kits? And so we'll take them over and show them the AccuRail and the the train line kits. You know, they said, no, nah, he needs to understand how to do this. You know, I wanted to write a passage, but <laughs> so maybe so. Richard, thanks for your time today. Good talking to you, Paul, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you again soon. Oh, likewise.